poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, friendo, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG has racked up over $15 million in live and online multi-table tournament caches, is the former number one online MTT poker player in the world, and co-founded the wildly successful BitB staking group, the one and only Patrick Pads Leonard. To go along with all of those lofty poker accolades, Pads also owns a soccer team, which he'll tell you all about in our conversation, and in his free time gives out free reality TV show betting advice on Instagram. Yes, that's really a thing, and because I know you're sitting there chomping at the bit to dive deep into today's conversation with Patrick Leonard, here's a little taste of what you're going to learn. How pads learn high-stakes crushers were mere mortals who were capable of being beaten. Why pads is so passionate about online poker and how that passion eventually led him to leaving BitB staking. The exact route both pads and I believe you ought to take if you're genuinely looking to elevate your poker game. And much, much more. But before you dive into today's show with Patrick Leonard, I wanted to let you know that you can now represent Chasing Poker Greatness at your local card room, home game, or pretty much anywhere else you're allowed to wear a t-shirt and hat by heading to cpgmerch.com. If you've listened to every episode and want to help me out by building awareness and spreading the word about your favorite poker podcast, you can scoop up your very own CPG hat or t-shirt at cpgmerch.com. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you one of the most feared and respected online poker players in the entire galaxy, Patrick Pads Leonard on Chasing Poker Greatness. Patrick, how you doing, sir? Welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness. Good, good to be here. Good to be here. There's a, I think there's so many podcasts out there now, but it's good to be in this one. This is one which I've never been on before, and it's a little bit different to the other ones, which is which is nice as well. So definitely really good to be here. Thanks, man. Um, we had a discussion in the the pre-talk about what to call you, you know, Pads, Patrick, Pat, all these <laughs> things. Um, and yeah, you said to call you what I would tell people. <laughs> um, and what I would tell people is Patrick, because damn it, that's your name. That's fine by me. My my mum will appreciate that one probably. <laughs> probably hard, so. um, I think my WhatsApp name for a couple of years was Patricia. So uh, <laughs> that's what I usually call myself for some reason. <laughs> nah, man, that's too ostentatious. No Patricio. Yeah, just because if, if I call somebody, you know, when, you know, if someone calls me, what I do is I don't, I never answer the call if it's an unknown number. Then I save their name and then go to WhatsApp and check their picture to see like who it is. And then if it's someone I recognize, I will call them back. But if it's like a random dude or a random girl, or whatever, I would just like ignore the call, block it or whatever, you know? So like I, I'm in, in case anyone does the same levels of weirdness as me, uh, <laughs> I call myself Patricio on WhatsApp. So people kind of know to me, but if someone's like, 
trying to check out who I am doing some intel, then it's a little bit disguised as well, you know. So Wow, you have thought a lot about this. That is a that is a not the quite the funnel you have there for like yeah. av- avoiding <laughs> avoiding random calls. Yeah. I my process is much more simple. Somebody calls me on a number I don't know, I just never answer. <laughs> That's what oh, it I'm is. Maybe it's some <laughs> You know, maybe it's important somehow or someone's changed their number or yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's just never if it's a if it's a if it's important, they'll just text me and say like, Hey, this is so and so. Answer the damn phone. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty that's pretty. Let's start out how we typically start out this show and talk about your journey through poker. Um, what did finding poker, learning how to play poker, where did that all begin? Whenever, whenever I answer these questions, it's so tough to remember like timelines. Like I'm 32 now, so like remembering like when I was 21 to 22 is always difficult for me. It used to be a lot easier, but it gets more and more difficult as time goes on. Then slowly lose my memory. But I, I started playing poker. I started playing poker when I was around 16, 17. I left school, or I left my like best friends, like classmates who I'd grown up with from like, say seven years old to 16. When you get to 16 in the UK, you you decide what kind of path you want to go on. Most of my friends went down the traditional path of like doing extra study at school, which is called A-levels, which is like just before college or university kind of thing. Um, but I was really into football. So I went to like a sports specific um, college, let's say, uh, with like the idea of being like a professional footballer or having a, Career, uh, soccer for your listeners maybe and having a career in soccer um but I still wanted to see my friends who were who I'd grown up with so on the weekend uh they were really into poker so when I was playing football like in between classes they were in their school basically playing poker that was their thing um so I didn't really like poker didn't really enjoy poker um but I used to just I still wanted to see my friends on a Friday night Saturday night so I used to just go and like donate to their game and not really enjoy it too much like I was almost like I was the fish I was the whale and um I remember one night specifically someone like laughed at me or something or like they were laughing about how bad I was and I've always had like relatively large ego lots of pride you know like coming from a sporting background I really always wanted to win hadn't really been used to losing too much because I'd been lucky to be in teams which were successful or around like really good other soccer players which made the team good so to, to lose was kind of a bad feeling for me so I just decided I wanted, wanted to get good enough to to beat these guys so they didn't laugh at me or like, my ego felt that I was very competitive if that makes sense and it wasn't too difficult obviously because like no offense to them they were just playing for fun you know and weren't even taking it serious so anything in terms of ranges or anything in terms of strategy was just enough to be successful in this, you know, non-rigged home game, let's say. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. They love it, right? Like they love playing and that's what they spend their free time doing and they make fun of you and your competitive nature just kind of kicks in and like, it wasn't a hook of like, I really love this game. It's like, no, no, fuck these guys. (laughs) No, I didn't didn't love the game at all. No, I I didn't love it. I was, I, I wanted to, uh, like play sports like instead with them, but they were not so much into that. It was the evening. I wanted to probably go out, drink, or like not party, but like get up to trouble. I, I was actually, they probably, it's weird weird enough to say, like I haven't really spoken too much about this, but around about that same age, I started to get into like, although I was like in some pretty serious like soccer teams, I was starting to kind of sway into like 
not like serious crime, but like maybe like small petty crime that like maybe 16 year olds kind of get up to. Um, just get just looking for mischief, like roaming the streets of, in like big groups of gangs and stuff like this. Like, I was, did you say crime? You said crime. Yeah, like like petty crime, like just getting up to trouble kind of thing. You know, looking looking for ways to get into trouble. Yeah, um, I, th- I thought you said crying. I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't understand. He's <laughs> crying all the time. No, 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 petty crime. Gotcha, but gotcha. Friends, but my friends were actually like quite smart and more serious, and they didn't really want to go down that avenue. Uh, so if anything, they probably poker almost could have not saved me, but it definitely made me not go down that path, which I was definitely going down. Why um, crime? This is, this is like fascinating for I, me. I don't mean like, into, I wasn't like, rob, it, not in terms of like robbing the mi- mischief, you know, like why the, why the pull into like mischief and that sort of like, I've uh, always been like relatively mischievous. Like, like my friends will always, like if people who know me properly, like I'm, I'm, if you see me at like a live stop or something, I'm very like, like very quiet and calm because I'm just there to play poker or whatever. But if I'm with like groups of friends or like poker friends in a house, or whatever, people will always be like, oh, I'm the one getting up to, to like mischief or like playing practical jokes or like being like the joker, let's say, like always just looking for something to have fun with. Um, give, give me a mischief story, Patrick. I, I need, I need a story of mischief. Oh my God. Uh, I, at this time, I don't, I don't so like in the uk it's it's different to like to america and to other places that you, you go around in like gangs so like in london now where i live you can't go in you can't go to a lot of places after say 7 p.m because there's a lot of especially if it's dark because there's a lot of gangs looking to get up to trouble looking to like rob you looking to you know lots of, lots of knife crime and stuff like this but 20 years ago whenever when i was 16 15 like 18 years ago it was the same, but not as brutal. So you would just go around in big gangs, starting to drink for the first time uh, on like street corners and parks. And you would look for like, you would just look to get into trouble, you know? So someone, like, I, I've never done this, but someone would come on like a stolen scooter around the park and would get like cheers, you know, like, <laughs> you'd go, or you'd find another gang or another gang would find you and want to fight with you. Or like, you would maybe like, go to the store and rob like some chewing gum or something just for the buzz of like, oh, like we were naughty. Do you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> it was just that age where, and then after then a lot of people did end up going, a lot of people do like, it's a, it's a thing in, in the UK, especially where a lot of people end up going to like jail in the 18, 19, 20, 21, because they've, it something got carried away, you know, and it's really easy for something to just get carried away quite quickly. Like I, I mean, I, should, I shouldn't say this stuff or whatever. But I remember one time we were, I was in a car and we were, we went out to like steal a car, basically. People, people who know you think I'm like the most innocent person. <laughs> but we, were, we went out to steal a car uh, and we got into, a car, into the car and we had no idea what to do. So we just, we got into, we were basically just looking for like doors which were open. So like, we, but secretly I was hoping that the door wasn't, wasn't open. It's like some people don't lock their cars or whatever. I don't know why. Um, so I was hoping every time you pulled the handle, oh, please be locked, please be locked. <laughs> was, one wasn't locked and we got into the car. And then when we got into the car, we were like, well, what, what the fuck do we do now? And I remember <laughs> someone, was like, someone had heard from somebody that you had to like pull the steering wheel off. And I was like, well, if we pull the steering wheel off, how are we going to drive it? And, <laughs> uh, and then what actually happened was really weirdly, like this is bizarre because it wasn't in like a church or anything. There was like, it was a nun's car 
and she started chasing us, and then that, that's all I remember. <laughs> and I, I mean, this is actually these things are very very weird to say. That. After that, I ran home. Okay, so I, this was a crazy. Night. I ran home. It was maybe like a a two mile run, uh, and halfway there, there was a girl. This was like now, at like I guess one a.m. There was a girl lying on lying on the floor, having like a panic attack randomly. Like I guess she'd been on a night out or something. So I'm like running past her, known as like police around or whatever. And I'm like, fuck, well, what, I need to like help this girl, right? So <laughs> I was like, oh God, I mean, this is a weird one. So I'm like asking her, are you okay? Are you okay? She was like, call an ambulance. I'm like, fuck. So like <laughs> probably the same police who, um, the same police who were probably looking for us. I was like, going to call to help this girl, you know? Uh, so I call the 999 and like this girl's like having a like, attack or something i have no idea what's going on with her and they're like oh are you her friend are you her boyfriend i was like no she's like she was like 35 i was 16 right and then she just started screaming he's hurting me he's hurting me and i'm like fuck oh my god i'm like fuck so now i see like they're like okay someone's gonna come out and i'm like panicking i just like get home and then like the next morning <laughs> these things are so crazy i'm probably gonna ask you tomorrow to edit all this out no patrick this is like the best story on cpg ever <laughs> So the next morning I'm sitting in my house and I get a phone call. This is, this is weird. I get a phone call from the police and they're like, oh, um, we're in a car in like, there's a pub called the Newton pub next to where I used to live, where, a place where we used to get to a lot of mischief, like outside, which yeah. we were old enough or looked old enough to go in. And they're like, we're at the Newton pub in the car. Like it was a, it was, act, it was an actual police car. And they're like, can you come to speak to us? So I went to speak to them. They're like, uh, this girl's in hospital now. She has serious injuries, whatever. Um, but we've seen the cameras. We know you haven't done anything. We know you did the right thing. But uh, we just need to check, like, blah, 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 blah. And then I was like, oh, well, they're going to have got me on camera doing something else. They're going to arrest me. I was panicking. I, yeah, know, like, I'm, you're you're sweating. All these things, yeah. And then and they basically just, like, were like, okay, that's fine. No problem. Thanks for calling. You did the right thing. And they were, like, not treating me like a hero, but they're like, oh, you could have saved a life kind of thing. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like, I, I, I didn't used to use poker metaphors then, but I was definitely running good or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, but my friends who played poker to kind of like go full circle back, they were kind of not the ones who were getting up to this kind of trouble. So if they hadn't been like luring me back into these poker games and convincing me to go play poker, I would have probably like stayed on the streets at 16, 17, just getting up to mischief, you know, just looking for not... Yeah, like looking for trouble, but like in like an almost innocent, not in an innocent way, but like it was nothing like too severe, you know. But who knows, like what kind of path you could potentially go down, you know? You could just be one small mistake from causing like something big, you know, like a big, big problem. So. Yeah, I mean, and, and things happen, right? That like you don't anticipate. I mean, yeah, I would say though that like you trying to steal a car with like no idea of how to like start a car. Um, is probably <laughs> probably a pretty safe bet that like you you're like the a, a dog chasing its tail right like you don't know what to yeah. do if you catch it um, well, or well, a dog chasing time, a car. My best friend at the time and still like uh, one of my best friends now he got citizens arrested once and in, in, I'm not sure if this is a thing in America but in the UK if you can just arrest somebody like really if I'm on the, if I'm on the street I, I'm not sure the exact like term or whatever but you can just arrest anybody if you think. You're doing like you're doing a citizen's duty. You can just arrest somebody. So we were just out, 
and we like we would we were running away from the, from somebody or something. There was like fifty of us running across the street, and my friend got like rugby tackled or like tackled to the floor, or whatever, or stopped. I'm not sure exactly, and he got like citizens arrested, which is crazy, you know. Like I, I remember that quite specifically too. Like those were the <laughs> those were just there was just so much stuff always going on. It was just yeah. I mean, I guess this is just being like a. I guess just being like a kid, you know, like a 16 year old kind of wanting to rebel a little bit, I guess. Yeah. There was a movie, I think it was called like American Animals, that I watched maybe four years ago or so. It was back when like Movie Pass was a thing. And it was about an art heist. And really, it was just a couple of bored, a group of like three or four bored college kids that were just like kind of rebelling against like the monotony or the sanitization of life. Like they just wanted an adventure. They wanted to do something like get their pulse up, do something yeah. fun and just like get into a little bit of mischief. And they ended up pulling off like one of the largest art heists in history. And, you know, there were some, obviously things went poorly in their case because they did cause some trauma to like the, the guard that was there overnight. But yeah, I think that like there is this pull to like do things that excite you, that are like fun, having a little bit of adventure, knowing that like there's stakes, right? They're like yeah. if you get caught, there are stakes. Like if that nun is like a cross country runner, you're kind of fucked, man. Like yeah. <laughs> when they see on the video, you help you help the girl, and then like a few minutes later, like this nun comes streaking past, like still chasing you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, no, nah, man, that, those are great stories. And, and I think that I do think that this sort of mischievous nature, this sense of adventure, it makes me a little bit sad as an adult that like I don't experience more of that these days just because, like I said, things are pretty just uh, cut and dry. Yeah. I think as you get older too, sort of the mystery in life kind of fades a little bit because like when you're young, like most anything seems possible. And then as you get older, you're like, eh. That's probably not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you're doing the mischievous stuff, and yeah. you learn about poker. And out of spite, you're like spite learning how to play poker now. What happens after you're you start improving playing poker with your friends? Yes. Yeah, so, so being like the naughty, like mischievous guys, it, my ego at the time wanted me to be like to be seen as the, the naughtiest, to be, be seen as the craziest, to be, be seen as like the guy getting up to like the most trouble. So in poker, when I came in playing and I was losing, like this kind of went against of where like my status was, let's say like elsewhere. So I wanted to like also be the best at poker, right? So this was pretty easy to do because, you know, the people didn't take it as seriously, whatever. So I got, I got, I would say, you know, probably would be one of the, biggest winners in this game you know out, out of the pool of say 15 people maybe like 30 people like they, but the guys who are like the 20th the 30th best would just play once a month you know like they just didn't even hardly know the rules so like i said very like just very very recreational play and uh then we, we got to like 18 uh and my birthday is december so the people who like in this group of 30 the people who were born in say october September, November, they started going to the casino um, because when you're 18, you can gamble. And I was quite jealous that they could go and I couldn't go. Uh, but for them, it was very exciting to play this new kind of format or whatever in new people. A casino sounds very intriguing to an 18-year-old because a casino to you to, to us 
we've only seen it in movies, you know, like uh, Las Vegas, Ocean's Eleven. So first we imagined very glamorous things. So hearing my friends were there was always quite, I, I guess I was always like quite jealous for that first few months. You, you, um, you didn't try to like make a fake ID, try to get in no, there? It's like, it's, it's like impossible. The UK is very, it's, it's just, it would be impossible. But yeah, so I got, I guess it was my birthday, probably the week after I went and it was a free roll. Um, with like it was a free roll with a five pound optional rebuy if you busted um and i remember i got knocked out within like an orbit and they were like okay do you want to rebuy for the five pounds and i was so like ashamed or like i felt like these people in the casino were so much better than like i i could possibly be and my friends were kind of thing i was like wow these guys are just too good for me and i think i said out loud no you guys are just a different level to me or something but you know when you go to a casino and you have like the guys who play ten dollar tournaments but they think they're like kind of pros and like they use terminology or they flick their chips in or they look at their cards or they had card protectors you know i didn't really know anything like that was or they were wearing sunglasses to see these people as a very like a guy who had no idea what he was doing. I felt like these were like Doyle Brunson, Phil Ivey, do you know what I mean? Relative to who, who I was. I was like, wow, like these guys are like, these are casino players, do you know what I mean? Yeah, they so, got their shit together. So I, I didn't even pay the five pound rebuy. I was so ashamed I had to leave kind of thing. But again, my ego kind of was getting at me that, come on, like surely I can try to be as good as these or like get better. So I started like, I think I went to like forums and started to like learn, like looking at what people were saying who were like prestigious players. Looking, I was going to like hand history review forums and just like watching what people were saying. And then I realized a few things, went back to the casino and then quite quickly got to like one of the better players or like understanding the theory of the game, like better than better than these guys, let's say, which wasn't like too difficult because again, they're like free roll or 10 pound players. You know, it wasn't like I was going to Bobby's room or whatever like that. Um, uh, you, you mentioned a few times that like, you know, you started studying and you got way better than your friends and then you started studying and you got better than like the, you know, the 10, 10 pound players, I guess I, I do want to ask, um, about just the way that your mind works and strategy, like a strategy, something that comes to you fairly naturally. Do you think in terms of strategy, especially having like the competitive background that you do? Kind of. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's so much strategy. I would say very competitive. Like my, my, I would probably like, I used to play chess against my parents like every day growing up. So like we never, but we'd never, we had kind of a rule that we weren't allowed to like seek strategy elsewhere and we wouldn't play against anyone else. It was just myself against my mom, myself against my dad, my dad against my mom. Why and was the, why the rule? I think we just like like to compete against each other. And if one if one of us was like getting really good secretly, it would kind of go against like the intellectual battle that we had against each other. If that made sense, yeah, it does but, make sense. But if I if I was like eight or nine, and like I could move a piece on the chessboard like without them looking, so I could win the game, I'd probably do it. I really <laughs> wanted to, so I think I was I was I was more concerned about winning and losing than let's say strategy, if that makes sense. So my mind wasn't really built around necessarily strategy from an early age but my mind was definitely built around being competitive from an early age i would say well discovery sure. then so like i think there are lots of people that hate losing that don't want to lose but continue yeah. to lose even when they try to improve so yeah. the process of like strategy discovery the process of reassessing your game adding things in and out could you speak on that 
Um, so I think I was more about obsession. So like just naturally, the more you do something, the better you're going to be, even if you're not trying too hard to get good, if that makes sense. So if I played, if I played like a $1 stick and go a thousand times, or you played it 10 times, I'm just naturally going to be better just through like learning from repetition or whatever. So my speed of improvement was quite quick, but I was being very obsessive over what I was doing. So I wasn't necessarily like studying too much or watching training videos. I was just playing so much that like, let's say 15 hours a day that it got to a level where just through repetition and seeing stuff and like seeing what other people were doing, I just got better than my friends who would be playing, you know, like two hours a week or whatever. Just I'm, my, my mind was never really built around um, around strategy. It was just always about obsession and like addiction almost, I guess, of just wanting to keep playing and just like, yeah, like try to win the next one, try to win the next one, you know? Um, yeah. We used to play like 45 man singles and full tilt. That was kind of the thing, like, because it was like, it was a tournament, but it wasn't too long. And it was like not too high variance because it was 45 players. And that was kind of the game that we used to, that's how we kind of learned poker, let's say. Um, but I also had a very big ego that I didn't want to be seen as a losing player. <laughs> Yeah. If I if I would lose my first say hundred games, like if I was a losing player, I would just make a new account because <laughs> your account never got verified until you cashed out. I think like you can mm -hmm. make an account and deposit, or that's how it used to be on Full Tilt at the time. And I used to have loads of different accounts because when I was eighteen at the very start, or even underage, probably actually like seventeen, let's say. I used to make accounts and just deposit my mum's card or with whatever card I could, or someone would transfer me money and I would transfer them, I would give them cash, whatever. And I used to just want to be seen as like a winning player because I just didn't want to be seen as as a loser, I guess. I, mean, I think that's what it was about initially. And that's why I was obsessive about it. I wasn't really too interested in being the best poker player in, in reality. You know, it was more about where I, where, where, where I was on the ladder of in my friend's eyes rather than my own eyes, I think. Yes. Yeah, seeking like outside validation. Right. I think yeah. it's, yeah. it's hilarious that you say that because like, uh, I know unless they purge them, which I assume they do purge accounts like after a certain period of time. But like mm -hmm. when I was probably 13 years old or 12 years old to like the age of like 17, I played lots of Yahoo spades, so much Yahoo spades. Mm -hmm. I probably have, over a thousand Yahoo email accounts because like yeah. I would make a name and then like if the record started sucking, it's like, oh no, we got to start over. <laughs> we got to start yeah. over again. Like we are win rates dropped under like 80%. We need to start a new name. It's um, same with chess, right? You know, like, like your ELO on chess, like chess.com, you know, like chess.com, you start with like a 1200 standard. And then if you lose the first games you quickly dropped like a thousand uh, yeah. like 900 as soon as i ever dropped to there on chess.com i would do the same thing or just make a new a new account until i got back up to like 1500 or whatever like i'm very very similar that's yeah, really hilarious but you you turn you know you come of age 18 where's soccer in your life you mentioned that you had you know dreamt of playing soccer professionally and also being obsessed with poker. So like, what did life look like then as it relates to like, you know, being obsessed with poker and then also the football? So I got to 18. Uh, so you leave school in England when you're 15 and you do some study from 15 till 17 or 15 till 18. And then when you turn 18, you then decide what your career is going to be. You either go to university 
or you get a job as let's say a laborer um, or you get like an apprentice as like an office clerk or something and then you build your way up um, so when I was 18 I decided to go to university I, was, I always had like pretty good grades so I was always like with I was never really that interested but I always did quite well at school I would say I was always maybe like top 20% in the class and put in like the bottom 20% effort. So like I was never like the top of the class, but I always put in the least effort at school. It didn't really intrigue me too much. I wasn't really interested. I didn't know why. I didn't accept that I needed to learn all these things which I didn't see as being uh, beneficial for me, I guess. So, but I did, I got good enough grades to go to university, which is probably what like the top 10% of the school do, I guess, or top 20%, I guess, something like that. And I studied journalism in a place called Sheffield, which is in England. And then I had to decide like what my priorities were in life, whether it was going to be studying, which it wasn't going to be, whether it was going to be soccer um, or whether it was going to be poker. Uh, I tried to do poker and soccer and I just give up these. I, I was still going to school like studying, um, but I wasn't actually going like my attendance rate was maybe like 1% or whatever. Um, why, why journalism? Um, I kind of liked it. I was, I'm, I'm always very like intrigued about things. I, I liked, I've always liked maybe something kind of edgy, let's say, like I wanted to do something different to the norm. I definitely didn't see myself doing something like, I don't know, just like a, an office manager or whatever, you know, like, or being like a doctor or something that didn't, stuff like that didn't, something traditional never intrigued me doing something a little bit edgy. Uh, again, because almost because of how it sounds, right? Like being a journalist to me seemed cool, you know, as an 18 year old, being like a music journalist or a sports journalist, like that, that sounded quite cool to tell people, to tell people I was, let's say, just a businessman or something, just didn't, it, it was too ordinary. And I, I seek that kind of social validation potentially. I'm not sure. Something well, along those lines. I um, think it aligns with you though. Like, I think that like there's this sense of adventure and sense of like, kind of getting in places and asking questions maybe you know you're not supposed to trying to get to the truth of things and discovery and then writing them up like that seems like again a pretty like adventurous career path if you're like in the field doing investigation sure. yeah I, I love the idea of being like doing investigation stuff like going to the streets like undercover stuff like that to me was like what a journalist was but then when i got to university it wasn't going undercover and pretending to be like a homeless person looking for like secret stories it was more like <laughs> It was more, it was more like learning about literature and English and stuff like I could already write well, you know, I didn't feel like, I was like, well, why am I coming here and doing this class, which trying to just improve writing techniques, you know, like learning how to do shorthand and stuff like this. Like I wanted to be out there, busy, like active. The thing I always remember, the stuff I always wanted to do was to like go to, go to court and like look at people getting, not prosecuted, look at, look at cases and like be there in the dock like seeing the action and being in the middle of things like a different thing every day like to me that's what intrigued me being back in the office like writing up like results or whatever of football games like to me that was i'm not gonna i'm definitely not gonna do that so i decided okay let's do soccer and let's do poker and i started to do club nights like events uh, which again kind of falls into practice being in england if you run the club nights you're kind of the popular kid because everyone wants to go party and you're the one who can get VIP passes or you're the one who can get them in or you're the one who can organize X, Y, or Z. 
getting to the front of the queue where others have to wait an hour. So that to me, again, kind of gave me the social status that, okay, this guy's important. This guy's seen as like a cool kid. It was a different job than working in, say, a supermarket or whatever my, my friends were doing. So it seemed different. It seemed yeah, like a little bit special, let's say. Um, so that was great. That was something I really enjoyed doing. The soccer, I was in the soccer team, obviously, at university. The people on the team were very... In England, we have this thing called like laddie, like laddie culture. It's like lads, lads, lads. It's like singing, drinking, like. And at the time, it was it, it wasn't really what I was into. It was like, it was like singing. It's like singing, drinking, like. It's, it's weird what to say. Just like university, like. It's almost like a little bit of luck, I think, university for who you, what circles you fall into, like. You get put into a house. You don't choose who you live with. You just get put in with five random people, and like these five people could be really similar to you, or they could be completely different to you. And it's similar on sports teams. Like a sports team in 2021, maybe people you just don't connect with at all. But in 2023, it might be people who are exactly like you. And I just feel like the people who were on my team just were very different to me, not really into what I was into. So I started. I played the first year, and then for the second year, I was like. I'm just not into this. I just, I want to just focus all on poker. So I was basically just focusing entirely on poker, I'd say, by like the second year of university. So now I'm like 19 turning 20. So yeah, that's like, I'm starting to like play online, uh, take it more seriously, like be very, very active on forums. I started, I was always like, I'm not sure how I, I would be quite scared almost to it now, but I always used to just write to really good poker players and just like send them hands and be like, oh, like, what do you think about this? And I used to just like, people who would be playing maybe like like $400 ABI and I was playing like $5 ABI whatever by this point, you know? And I was just like, oh, what do you think about this? Or like, I would tell them that they played a hand bad or something. <laughs> I was very like into it. I, was, I had no, had no real filter. Like I was just happy to get, I was very, I, I if I, I, now I'm very hesitant to do things because I'm very, I'm not sure I'd, I'd rather don't do those kind of things. But at the time, looking back now, I'd be definitely cringing at the person I was. But if I didn't do that, I would never get to the level that I got to because I networked pretty well and uh, did quite well from, from that side, I think. Um, but yeah, at this point, I'm still a losing player, let's say, just like obsessive, like still trying, haven't broken through. Feel like it's unfair that I haven't broken through, that I deserve to be better than I am, blah, 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 you know, like kind of 19 you're okay. And at, at what point did like the switch flip to where it was like, you know, you don't rebuy because you you feel outclassed and like you're only learning poker to beat your friends. Like at what point was it like, I'm going to pursue this thing kind of in earnest. I feel kind of drawn to it. It makes sense. It resonates. So when I was like 19, 20, like I said, at this point, I'm very active on forums and I get to the level where like my status on the forums is a lot higher than I actually am as a, than as, as a player. So like people view me from my posts and what I say as being like a really, I would say good player. I wouldn't say really good. I would say like a good player, but in reality, I'm not so great at this point. Um, like if, if you had to ask everyone on the forum at the time, oh, what do you think Patrick's bankroll is? They would probably say, Oh, like, you know, between say 20 and 50k where in reality it was probably like between like five and like let's say 5k that's something along those lines so my status was a lot higher than I actually was so I start to get opportunities 
I've taken like random tournaments here or like someone would put me in for a Sunday schedule there kind of thing. Just like seeing that they they thought I had some promise, let's say, or they thought I was a good investment, which I probably wasn't. And then I graduate from university, basically. I finish university. I'm now probably 21 and I get a job working in finance, actually. Uh, And then now I start to have some money. Now now I can start like building a bankroll and like taking shots, let's say. How did you get a job in finance? Where did this where did this come from? Well, basically, the guy who owned the finance company owned a football team, a soccer team. uh, And he basically said if I played for his team, he would give me a job. So I worked like three days a week. Uh, I worked three days a week for him, getting him new leads, getting him uh, new. I was quite good at, again, you know, like I said, I'm very good at reaching out to people. Like uh, I was very good at reaching out to people. Uh, I would just write to like, so so we we were like asset management, right? Um, I would just reach out to like really rich people. Like the, the average asset management we used to do is probably like, 200k 300k you know like someone who's got like a decent job saved up some money like those are the kind of people we would look after you know like pensions or that kind of thing and i just started reaching out to like people with like 20 million 30 million spec i mean hey like oh we, we want to look after your money like we're gonna do, <laughs> we're gonna do better than what you're doing and i and uh we would get like i would send them to like meetings in london with like the rich, big 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 businessmen you know uh, and we would never be able to look after them. But I was opening, I was opening the right doors, you know, like he was like, oh, wow, like, this is crazy. I'm going to <laughs> that building when he's used to go into like, you know, like teachers or whatever, you know, like, nothing wrong with the teacher. Just it was a different level of person. So like, I was actually randomly pretty well suited to this job. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm now like 21, basically. Uh, and then the, because I'm so active on, on poker forums, I would basically all day at this job just post on poker forums and write to rich people trying to get them to do their money. And that was all I did for like six months. And at this point, I started getting poker companies reaching out to me to work for them because I was so active. You know, like I was having thousands of posts. Like I had my opinion everywhere. I was seen as a good poker player. I was probably okay by this point. And uh, there's a company called, I'm not sure you'll know, it's a company called pokerstrategy.com. They are. Um, they were the biggest poker company in the world at the time. They had nine million members. They were like a super, super affiliate, and they offered me a job um, to work for them in Spain, basically Gibraltar. Uh, and again, as a 21-year-old, but all my friends are living in England, to be able to be seen as, oh, Patrick's got a job in Spain. Like it's like something different, you know. As, so I left this job and then randomly went to Spain and worked for this company because I thought everyone will be talking about me moving up in the world, living in Spain, in a penthouse, wherever it was, you know. And I loved I loved that almost as much as I loved working in poker, you know, like that was a big, a big appeal to me, let's say. From the from the outside, it's pretty hilarious. Like all these things. It's not about like what Patrick really wants to do. It's all about like well it is about what Patrick wants. And that's like people to look at him in a certain way, right? Yeah. Uh, the perception of you. I I think that Going back to what you're saying about like reaching out to players with like 400 average buy-in and these super wealthy folks, there is this like level of ignorance, I think, that when you're kind of young and kind of don't really understand the social mechanics of things that Mm -hmm. creates this like fearlessness. And I I sort of experienced this recently myself because I'm, I'm like very... 
I don't know how to how to express this cleanly, but like basically I'm very protective of like any sort of high level connection that I have with people. So like, you know, I was friends with a billionaire, right? And I was like made it a point to like not ask him for anything ever. Like I just don't want to I don't want to be that person. I want to ask you for anything. So like whenever I have these connections with like high level poker players, I'm like uh, I don't really want to ask them for very much. I don't want to like just be a taker. I want to reach out to them and like ask how they're doing in their life without any like expectation of anything in return. And so like yeah. I'm always super tentative about like reaching out to have guests back, right? Like especially you know the higher level guys because I'm like oh, I don't want to bug them. I don't want to be a nuisance. You know they got their own stuff. They're very busy all these things. And then I hired an assistant and I gave her like vague instructions on like reaching out to people. Like I didn't tell her like who to reach out to. It was basically like, yeah, let's line up some podcast interviews. You can handle the outreach for a little while. And like, I'm going to work on some other stuff and this will just be off my plate. So mm-hmm. like she just did not give a shit because she, like, she didn't know about the poker space. So she's like reaching yeah. out to like, all these crushers to like come back on the show and stuff. And I'm like, Oh fuck. Like Chewy was just on like four months ago. And like now, like we're just asking him again. And then like the irony was that like everybody said yes. And they were like all excited to. And I think that like, I just think that there's a a gap in like how we're perceived and how people view us and like the reality. Cause like most of those guys playing the 400 average buy in tournaments, you know, they're probably, pretty lonely on their path and they like connecting with people and they like helping and maybe the same with like these ultra wealthy people as well. And like, we're just so, you you know, you're just so ignorant at that stage that you don't really, you don't understand. And Mm -hmm. so you don't have fear and lack of fear just kind of creates those connections. Yeah. I think a lot probably comes back to like childhood to some degree too. Like I had a very like easy childhood, I'd say like I was an only child. I basically got, I wasn't spoiled, but I could, I never like asked for something and didn't get it, let's say. But I didn't probably ask for much, but I, I never, I didn't really feel like ever rejected or like neglected, let's say. Like my parents really looked after me well. Um, so I hadn't used to being rejected, you know? So reaching out to someone and asking them to do something for me, like I just expected them to say yes, you know? <laughs> if no one yeah. said no to you, why would you start expecting people to say no? Do you know what I mean? So, when I was say 17 and I'm still a kid, like I haven't had people say no to me in my life. I've had like a pretty easy kind of upbringing, you know, like I haven't had to to scrap or fight too much. Like I've just been able to be pretty comfy, you know? So when you get to 17 and the poker players keep replying and I get to 21, I'm like, oh, well, obviously why would I, why would I write to a doctor when I can write to like a hedge fund manager? You know, like he, he'll say yes too. So it was just the same kind of thing. And then now when you get to, I'm 32, you obviously get more like nose down the line because you just realize how life is, you know, or, or you start, I've also never rejected anyone else by this point either, right? When I'm 17, no one's asked me for a favor. I said, no, you just say yes. Cause your friends ask you to say yes. Uh, same when you, when I was 21, like I'm not used to like rejecting people or putting people down or whatever. But obviously, as you know, when you go from 20 to 30, there's loads of times where you just have to unfortunately let people down or people let you down or whatever it may be, because everything is obviously more complicated as an adult. But yeah, this point I'm 21 in Spain, working for Poker Strategy, the biggest company in the world. Our like almost every German player, basically, basically like Igor Kognov, um, Ole Shemian, like any German player, most European players they all started the poker strategy. We give them $50 
and we had loads of coaches and we used to coach them to get uh, better. So their $50 turned into 60, into 100, into 200, blah, blah, blah. And we used to get a percentage of their rake, let's say 40% or whatever. So it was in our interest to keep their bankrolls alive. So uh, I think, like I said, we had 9 million members that we give $50 to. So if you do the maths, it's obviously a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, but it was a very, very successful business. Huge office in Spain. I was 21, kind of loving life. But there was something which was really strange to me that, uh, all of these top players who were uh, like supernova elites and the people who, when I play online, like say Zoom 200 at the time was, or it was Rush 400 at the time. Actually, sorry, I was playing Zoom 100 at this time. Uh, all the people who played like 1K NL or 2K NL, like supernova elites, to me, they were like the alpha poker players that I would never get as good at. And they're never even considered to be close to ever achieving their success in poker. I saw poker at this point, basically I'm gonna play 100 NL, make like 5K a month extra like money. And I know my level, I'm not deep into strategy. I'm not trying to be good. I'm just trying to be okay. Like that was my stage of poker. I'm in poker strategy getting paid like 50K a year. My friends are probably on like 20 in England. I feel great. Like, That's, I feel like that seems like an sh interesting shift from like, yeah, the, the competitive side. Like, how did that shift come about? Where you were just kind of like, yeah, I'm just, I accept being a hundred and L rush player. So I, I'd gotten to hundred and L, and that was kind of my goal because I'd been like, let's say, like a a guy with a small bankroll before, like everyone is at the start, right? And like my goal, end goal was if I can get to a hundred and L, then it's enough money to have like a comfortable amount on the side. Like this was my end goal, but it probably took me, you know, like a couple of years to get there. So it was like a long goal. So when, when I got there, I was kind of content. And the guys who were like playing one KNL or like people like Galfon, the five KNL, whatever it may be, like they they were never even in my sights as a goal because I was playing five and L, let's say, or ten and L, twenty-five and L, whatever it may be. My goal is to get to hundred and L. My goal isn't really thinking about those guys. So once I achieved it, I'm living in Spain, you know, I'm partying a little bit. Like I'm not really not not so much partying, I'm like I'm just I've got a job, I've got a career, like loads of interesting things are going on. I'm living in the sun, like you're content. Uh, think, yeah, I'm content. I'm happy. Like, I'm okay. Uh, but then the big, big shift was that my girlfriend at the time was the VIP manager for all the top VIPs, all the guys who played 1KNL, 2KNL, whatever. She was the VIP manager for these people. And all day, every day, she had problems. This guy's not playing because of this. This guy's not playing because of that. You know, you basically, the VIPs would make the company, like, between 10 to 50k a month based on rake right depending on who they were so like were they, there like benchmarks that, uh, that they needed to meet the vips um well they were like at the, at the time it was supernova elite so it was like they they had to meet the supernova elite benchmark but some guys were going for like 2x supernova elite some guys were going for 3x supernova elite but my girlfriend basically these guys were like the people who I was like, wow, they're like the people I can never get close to. But then every night my girlfriend would come home and she'd be like, this guy lost 10 buy-ins today because his girlfriend didn't speak to him this morning. Or this, this, guy, <laughs> this guy smashed his computer because of this reason. Or this guy lost all his money on roulette last night. Or this guy did this. Or this guy did that. And slowly all these people who were so far ahead of me that I never thought I could even have a chance of even thinking about catching up. It wasn't even a goal. These people were now like not idiots, not like 
I'm not sure what the words. They were they were closer to me than I realized. You know, they it were, was surmountable. She chipped away at their reputation inadvertently. Yeah, I started thinking like, what if? You know, so I started thinking, what if? So I'm now like 21, turning 22, um, and I'm starting to make more money on the side. So I've moved it from 100 nil, and now I start playing a bit high. I start playing 200 nil. I'm living with a guy who's playing 400 nil, and I'm watching him, and I'm basically ghosting him i would say like at this point but i'm a lower stakes player so it's like i'm probably playing like between 50 and l and 100 and l i'm but i'm ghosting a guy playing four times the stakes like 400 and l rush and he was having like 30k months i would say but it was basically not all down to me but like i would say like pretty much down to me and i was like fuck me like he's this is possible you know so i'm seeing all the vips who are like now not VIPs in my opinion. I'm watching basically playing for a guy who I could play the same stakes if I had the bankroll, let's say, and be making 20K a month as well. And then I was like, if I don't do this, if I don't try to do this, I'm going to regret it. So after, let's say, it's so hard to say, let's say after a year to 18 months-ish, I decided, okay, I'm going to go for Supernova release. Uh, I moved to Budapest, which is where my girlfriend was from. She quit her job uh, and moved with me from Spain. And I started to play 500 Zoom, uh, which was the toughest game in the world at the time, uh, and be a supernova elite. So that was like, I'm now 20. It's so hard to say age, but I'm about 22 to 23. And now this is my goal to be a supernova elite. And this was like something which I, a year earlier, I I would never have even considered, you know, like I didn't think it was possible. Like it wasn't a thing. Cause I always remembered hearing like Ansky. Do you remember Ansky? Yeah. Dan, Donnie yeah, Ansky. Danny Stern. I always remember him saying about how tough 500 zoom was. And I think Timex did like a prop bet where he lost to be, he, he tried to play 500 zoom and he couldn't win. Was, this was like quite a famous prop bet <laughs> at that time. Yeah. So, so before this, I was like, well, if they can't win, like how can I win? You know Mike I mean? McDonald lost it lots of prop bet this something's going on here <laughs> exactly yeah he wasn't so famous at the time but i knew he's a good player you know mm-hmm. um so yeah it's now like january i've probably just turned 23 it's january start of the year and i move in with one with two of the guys who are also going for supernova elite so we're all going for supernova elite to push each other on they're playing different games to me like PLO, I think, and like heads up and something else. Uh, so we're playing different games, but we're all trying to get the same amount of points. So we tell each other after each day, like what points are on, you know, like basically go in for this whole whole thing. And this is like, this is January to February. I've just turned 23 um, and I'm in Budapest, new country. Again, telling my friends I've moved to a new place, like something different, you know, like I was going for Supernova Elite. You're playing the high stakes now. Yeah, exactly. And for them, it's fun to follow my journey too, you know, like I'm not living their dream or anything like that, but they understand what poker is, you know, it's like, let's say your friend's like a, a, let's say you like Formula One and your friend becomes a Formula One driver, but like at the very bottom and then he goes up and then he goes up and you you, you kind of follow in his journey and his progression to that kind of thing, you know, it's like similar kind of thing as that, I would say. Especially Um, if what they're doing is like fairly boring, right? It's like (laughs) they kind of live vicariously through you. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, so it's now February of that year, I think. Maybe March. Maybe like it's it's probably like halfway through February, maybe March, maybe the very start of March. 
and there's a there's a live stop in the UK, like a a one k tournament, and I never ever played any live tournaments at this point. I have no idea why I decided to go so small relative to the Supernova Elite stuff. It was like two buy-ins of Supernova Elite, and I had to lose like a week's worth of pace to go. I have no idea why I went. I went to this tournament, and I finished, let's say, 20th to like 4K or something. And I woke up on Sunday. It was, I woke up, the, I was supposed to fly home on the Monday. I woke up on the Sunday. I was in my bed, sharing with some some other guy in another bed, but it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> That's another story. It was like, yeah, it was like four, it was like 4 p.m., 5 p.m., which is like obviously relatively late. I think I'd been out the night before or something after the tournament. I was just exhausted. Uh, and he was just playing on my tournaments. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll play some too, whatever. So I, I fired my laptop up and I play like every 2.15 to 5.30. There wasn't that many at the time, you know, like there, there was no high rollers at this point. This was like nine years ago. And for somehow, I, I was obviously terrible because I've never, I'd never played tournaments really. But some, somehow, I won three tournaments that day for like, I'm gonna say like 120k ish. Uh, and at this point, my bankroll is probably like 30k. I would say maybe more. I don't know. Like, let's just say 50k max. So like, I've at least like trebled my bankroll at this point. And I'm like, fuck. But my whole goal is, okay, I want to be a Supernova Elite. I want to be a Supernova Elite. I don't want to fail. I don't want to be seen as the guy who failed Supernova Elite. So I just went back to Budapest the next day, kept grinding uh, 500 Zoom all week. Uh, probably played a bit too aggressive and lost, you know, put a few buys back thinking I was rich now. But I was just still in this mind frame, in this zone. Uh, and then the next Sunday, I'm, I'm guessing you know the tournament. It's like the anniversary Sunday million. It's like once a year. It's like... 10 million guaranteed or something like this so this sunday comes along and it's this sunday million anniversary so i'm like okay well obviously i should play this like whatever so i played this and i came i came ninth for like another 100k fifth, fifth, <laughs> yeah. uh, but at this point i'm really i'm not trying i really think it's important to say that i'm not good at tournaments at this point or like a crusher or anything well, it doesn't just, matter if you're good or not like the yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, just mean, like, I wasn't some like tournament prodigy or anything like this i was just getting really lucky in these tournaments uh but still i decided okay i'm going to keep playing these cash games and then the next week i won another like 80k the next sunday and i'm like fuck me like <laughs> this is uh and, and at this time i think i'm really good right so of course like, why wouldn't you yeah but then somebody somebody questioned my ability so someone said you're so lucky. I'm like, it's not luck. Like these guys, they fold every river against me. All you need to do is get big and they fold. I was winning a lot of chips. Like I was winning every flip, obviously, but I was also just like making everyone used to just hero fold. People never used to bluff that much right then, but as a cash game player, you could just bluff a lot and people didn't really understand. They would just fold if they had less than two pair versus like an all-in or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I was like running over people and I was also unknowing. So like, if it was like Chris Moman bluffing every river, he's going to start getting called, right? Because I'm only playing Sundays. No one has a clue who I am. The field sizes are huge. I was just bluffing all the way through, essentially. So this guy's like, yeah, you're just running well. And I was like, okay, well, I'll bet you that I'd be number one in the UK in uh, by the end of the month or something like that. And I keep running like really good, blah, blah, blah. I'm still playing cash games at this point. And then I get to number one in the UK, like on the most insane sun run. And then he's like, okay, well... Do you want to double or nothing to be number one in the world? And I'm like, okay, fuck it. And, and then I quit, <laughs> oh my God. I quit the cash games and then I just go 
trying to be number one in the world in tournaments, which I'd never played properly before, you know? And then I think by, I played all day, every day, like seven days a week. I was obsessive about it. I wasn't studying tournaments or like buying a course or whatever. I was just, I was just playing, just playing every day, say six days a week minimum. And then by, I guess like June, June-ish, I was number one in pocket fives in the world. And then that was like, that was like a mad, one year earlier, I was in Spain playing 100 now, you know, like working for this company. And then it was just such a lucky year to be able, everything to come together um, for this to happen. So, yeah. how, how did it feel seeing your name up there, number one? I'm not, I'm not sure. Not, I wouldn't say like so great. Um, I wouldn't say so great. I, I, I was still bitter. Like I was still thinking I was running bad at times. Like, <laughs> Uh, because I finished ninth in the Sunday Million, I didn't really understand anything about variants, right? Like, I felt like I was unlucky not to win that tournament for a million because I lost. I got to the final table, like I'm going to say second in chips or third in chips, and I think the first orbit I lose in all in queens against queen nine or ace nine or something. I'm not sure what it was. Um, but like all the chips, and I was like, if I won this, I keep telling everyone, if I just won this one flip, I would have won a million or whatever, you know. And to be able to tell friends I won a million dollars in a tournament, that was almost more important than adding a million dollars to my bankroll, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I'm now 23, I think. You know, I could be 24, it's hard, it's hard to say, but I'm, I'm around about, I think I'm 23. Um, it's like June, and I'm number one on pocket fives, and then I just, yeah, I just, I, I never played cash games ever again. <laughs> that was the end of the cash game career. Holy shit. Much, yeah. After yeah. Uh, what playing, traveling to play a 1K tournament ended your cash game career. Yeah. Um, I what, mean, it's weird. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. I would still be playing cash now, I think. so. That is really bizarre. And you, you haven't had any inclination, any uh, just motivation to dive back in the cash game streets at all since then? Um, yeah, I do play now and again. I do play now and again. Not like... I don't grind them out, but like I would play for sure like an hour here, an hour there. I play a lot of, it will probably get to to where we are right now, but um, I, I play a lot of live, like bigger cash games now. It's like, I wouldn't say most of my volume or anything like that, but I play like regularly, like at least, at least one or two times a week um, now, live cash games, which I think I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, as much as my fun as anything else anyway, but yeah. Um, no sustained cash game online action since then because it didn't really appeal to me in terms of I liked the competition again you know like we always speak about the competition I liked the competition of not even playing the tournaments but I liked the competition of the leaderboards you know being able to be number one in the world number one in the UK number one in my city whatever it may be that really really uh spurred me on and to this date i still do prop bets like for every single series like i love the competition of this of that like me against him or me against them or whatever it may be like that's what still drives me uh in poker today kind of thing yeah Um, so yeah some people like you know you need a, a target to shoot at right that's what makes the journey worthwhile once you hit number one like, and you have just transitioned to full tournaments. I mean, what happened next in your career? I assume at some point there's, you know, the downswing, the downside, any loss in confidence, anything like that? I'm actually really 
I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm actually, I wouldn't need to be careful what I say, but I actually feel very lucky that I think from 20, from, in my whole life, from 18 till 30, I think I never went one month to the next month with a lower bankroll in my uh, for, for like my whole until I was 30, I think. So like I never had a down, never had a losing month in, in my career until I was over 30. And if I, I would lose money playing some tournaments, but I would have other things on the side making me money. So basically what happened was, um, uh, there's, there's a guy called European at the time. He's like, he was the best player in the world. Uh, it's like, I don't know anyone, right? It's like, I don't know who all these regs are, these screen names. I don't know anybody. The people I'd looked up to earlier were cash game players like Tom Duan, high stakes poker. I used to watch all that kind of stuff. I didn't know any tournament players. So I would be playing every day against Swedish guys, Finnish guys, Canadian guys, American, whatever. And the best player or the toughest player I thought was a guy called European. And there was a hand on pokerstars.fr, which is really random, but you could play like with the French players for some reason. And he, he rejammed something for X amount of big blinds. And I called with whatever. And he wrote to me the next day on Skype and was like, that's a really bad call. He's like, it's not making money. Uh, he found my Skype and told me, well, like he had, he had my Skype somehow. And I was like, I was like trying to justify it somehow. Uh, but I hadn't run anything, right? Like I wasn't using any software at the time. There wasn't really many softwares about anyway, but he'd been running the stuff on this software that he had. And it really, to me, that was like, okay, this guy's like next, I thought I was the best kind of thing, you know, number one, blah, blah, blah. But this guy's like, it motivated me that this guy's using like other softwares and getting actually better kind of thing, uh, rather than just playing. Um, what so possessed I, him to like reach out to you on Skype? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, it, it, yeah, it would have been Skype. It was no understanding. It would have been Skype. Like we would have mutual friends or whatever. Um, we'd probably, okay. maybe, maybe we'd, I don't think we'd ever met. I don't think, you know, there used to be Skype groups of like MTT regs, like just random things. But yeah, he, he reached out to me and he told me that, whatever. And then so we start talking. He was more. trying to help you then? Like, uh, yeah, he was trying to help. Yeah, he was trying. To, he wasn't like belittling me. He was, he was like saying it in a nice way. Ah, cool. Yeah, gotcha. It was like, a, it was like a dude. It wasn't like a straight after that. <laughs> what are you doing? It was like, he yeah. Was, he was like, you can't call there because X, Y, Z. It's not making money. So that happened, and then we started talking more because obviously I think he's a nice guy because he's doing it, but also he's a really, he's probably the best player in the world at this point, right? So we talk every day as you do. We talk more and more, and then we I, we're probably not but we see ourselves at the time as the best player and second best player in the world right like as everyone does with their groups of friends i'm the best we're the best whatever like we're like okay well we're the best he was young he was like 18 at the time i think really young and i was like 23 let's say so we both probably have at this point i mean he probably had more money than me but i, I probably now have like a few hundred thousand and he has a lot of money as well for, for, for our age. And we're like, well, we don't want to go buy cars or houses. We just want to play tournaments. Like everything, our life was just tournaments, nothing else. So like, well, we have all this spare money. We, we think our strategy is better than everyone else's strategy. Why don't we find some horses, whatever, you know, like stakies and start just telling them how to play, let them watch us. And then they will win the same as us because you know, in your mind, everyone else is terrible. 
Yeah. And no one is studying at this point. There's no tools, but he's opening my eyes to this tool and that tool. And where I'm like seeing things, which I know that other people don't know because they're, it's not like widespread, you know, like on training sites, it's literally just like, it's like live playing commentary. There's no like real deep tools, isomizer yeah. or ICM or preflop shove and whatever, how much money does things make? So people are just playing off feel. It's like field players against field players. But Sam was opening my eyes more to like the really, and again, I told you earlier, the strategy part was never big for me. You know, like I was, the, I was a field player too. I was all about intuition. I was all about like, just play, let's just play, let's just play like everyone was. But Sam was kind of opening my eyes at this point to starting to enjoy the theory of the game. And the reason why I enjoyed it wasn't necessarily the sophistication of the theory, but more that I had the I had this stuff that other people didn't have, and I was ahead of them, you know. So it was like, <laughs> that was, do you know what I mean? Like that was the yeah. Me, like the more if I study every day, the stuff this is, I'm gonna know more and more stuff that these guys don't know. It's more right? prestige. Like it's it's pretty funny that that's yeah. like that that's like a huge driver, right? Like oh, I know something they don't know, and so like this yeah. makes me special. Exactly, exactly. So we so we made Bippy. It was called. Um, I, I had a blog. For all this time, I, I always had a blog, which I blogged every day from like kind of the journalist point of view, um, from 18, always. It was called Best in the Business. So I was a once, I started playing five cent heads up sitting goes, I think. Your blog was Best in the Business? Yeah, it was called Best in the Business, but it was uh, just, uh, a bit ironic. It was like, um, I was playing the lowest stakes, but it was like one day I'll be number one in the world. It was called Best in the Business. Yeah, gotcha. So a, lot of people, a lot of people used to follow that at the time because i was like rising up let's say like so when we made the stable we was thinking about different names you know like poker this poker that and i was like what about bitby like it kind of it kind of makes for what it kind of makes sense for what we're going to do plus people already know it. it's like associated to me so we made bitby best in the business bitby staken and uh yeah we started doing it with a third guy called elmerick's he was also Finnish, Sam's friend, who was like a huge pressure. He was up like 1.5 million at this point already. Like he was like next level again. Um, and then together, the three of us, we made Bitby and started to play every single day, coach every single day and for seven years. Or, yeah, for like seven or eight years, we just did this nonstop for like, yeah, nonstop all day, every day. It was like consumed our life, did nothing else essentially. And... Was the stable immediately successful? How did how did things yeah. go? Any bumpy paths as it relates to like creating, launching the stable? I mean, you know, I've heard so many stories about people that like get a hold of money and then they're like, oh, I'm just going to stake some people. And then like it just always, it, you know, it ends majority horribly <laughs> for, for that. Yeah. So the reason why things often end horribly is because people are like half into it. They do it half of the sweat. Mm -hmm. I'm so kind of compulsive and obsessive that it just wouldn't ever fail because I just would, my hourly might be really actually low because I'm spending literally every second checking this, checking that. Like I'm obsessed. I have like a problem with my phone that I, you know, if I close an app down, like I open it like five seconds later without even realizing I'm open it. Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure. Oh yes, of course. Like my, I, I've done things and I've seen my wife do it too. Where like, she'll be checking her email like on her computer and then I'll see her like look down at her phone 
and she's checking her email on her phone. <laughs> it's like, exactly. it's just this funny, funny compulsion type thing. Yeah. So, so that's what it was for us as well. But the one reason why it really worked for us was because it wasn't about the money. Um, it was about, we quickly realized that we, we basically only accepted about um, like 0.5% of people who applied, maybe less. Um, so we, we accepted very few people. And the number one criteria always was, do we like this person or not? Because if we're going to spend the whole time being obsessive over them, it needs to be in a positive way. Otherwise, the negative connotations that we're feeling towards them will like eat into us. We were quite quickly realizing that together that we just need to stake people that we like. And if you stake people that you like, you do it for them rather than for the money. And when you do it for them rather than the money, it's more likely to be successful. And then the money looks after itself kind of thing, because you're looking after really their best interest. You want them to do well rather than wanting to do well for yourself. Because I don't mean this in a, I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but if you have like over a $1 million bankroll and you're staking a guy whose EV for the year is let's say 20K, if there's three of you in a month, you're basically getting like $200 EV from the guy each month, something along those lines. So if you start thinking about the money and the hours you're putting in, it's never really going to work because you realize you can just do something else. So it's not that important. But when you really like him and you're doing it for him, the money's taking a backseat and then it just looks after him itself kind of thing. And eventually it'll all, the 20K turns into 30K, the 30K turns into 50K, 50K turns into 100K, whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously there was bad stories along the along the way. There was people doing this, people doing that. But overall, um, it was pretty, pretty good. I think second year, we had a blog on 2 plus 2. Again, the journalists kind of, and also like maybe even the ego wanted people to see how well we were actually doing. I think the blog was called five million profit in a year or something. And I think we 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 hit over the five million in the second year, obviously between the three of us. So it was straight away like pretty successful from 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 that point of view, I'd say. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your pre-flop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your pre-flop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. Before bootcamp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years. Somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And Preflop Bootcamp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to, to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in Bootcamp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what Rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I, I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. 
And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's、um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know that that was fun. That's、uh, pushing each other and really helping、uh, one another. Kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was、uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post boot camp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always. Being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up,、um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of of a solid poker game. And、uh, since boot camp, I've been able to to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and、uh, re- really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have seventy thousand hands played by now. You know, I'm. A father, and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month, and your link to join is ChasingPokerGreatness.com/bootcamp. One more time. That's chasingpokergreatness.com/bootcamp, all one word. Or you can click through in the description box of this episode. That is sick. It's sick and very wise.、Um, very wise move in your selection process because it's just money is kind of a toxic goal. And a toxic driver, and like it doesn't take you very far because like it just doesn't motivate you. But like when you invest in a human being whose story resonates with you, who you like and enjoy spending time with, I mean, all of my best coaching relationships with my students are always predicated on the fact that like we like each other. Like I genuinely want this person to succeed, and from that standpoint, I'm like excited when. They reach out to me like impromptu, and are like struggling with something, and I get to help them. Right? It's like、yeah. I don't make any money from it. I, you know, but I want to because like I like them as a human being, and、mm-hmm. that's a huge driver in the energy and how I feel about the energy that I'm investing in this person. Like if I don't like somebody and they reach out to me like randomly, I feel like it's almost. <laughs> I do respond, but I don't feel good about it. If that makes any sense, it's like, ah,、oh, this guy—they're just bugging me, you know, in my off time. Let me just respond so that they'll just kind of go away. I don't know if that makes sense. Hundred percent. I mean, we 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 did this thing where we used to go away twice a year and take everyone, like, pay for everything, whatever, like in big villas, and we'd be like a family almost, where we were there on like a, a boys' holiday almost, you know. But you you start to get even deeper and deeper. I think you. There's one thing liking somebody, but I think until you've really like met someone and felt the energy you have together, you can't really have that proper proper connection.、Um, ironically, we'd go and we'd do all these seminars and stuff. I remember the most impactful seminar of all of the any trip we did was the one which European did, which was about vulnerability. Which he everyone had to stand up, and I mean. It, people probably think it's weird, but everyone had to stand up and basically say something about who they're thankful for and why、uh, in life, and a lot of gratitude. 
and a lot of people were saying about like maybe their wife who's done this for them or someone's done that for them and then they've cheated on them or treated them badly and how bad they feel and like everyone was like completely opening up you know crying whatever else it was like really 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 like a deep 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 thing you know uh and i think when people see that you actually care for them and that they realize that they're not money machines first they're our friends they're going to be less likely to steal from you less like more motivated to grind for you more excited about coming to coaching sessions more easier for them to open up and tell you if they have problems in the future because they've cried in front of you you know like if i was staked by people i would often not want to tell them x y or z because you know they may judge me in a certain way but if i've if i've, if I've actually cried in front of them you know that i've cheated on my wife or i've been with for 20 years or whatever and i've done this and done that and she's done this or she has cancer whatever it may be you know like then if i have a small problem relative to that i'm going to be more I'm more likely to open up about it if that makes sense. Yeah. This was kind of how this was the this was how we approached the whole staking thing anyway. Like we were like first friends, second business. Did this just come intuitive to y'all? Well the thing is like we didn't yeah, we're not really like people who know again, like this probably again, people who probably know like people who probably know is probably one of the first things they'd probably again sounds so arrogant to say but probably the most the thing people would describe us as would probably be generous i would say like we we don't we're not really driven by money like I, we were always driven by the competition and the community side rather than the money i think probably at the very start when we first started it we were driven by the money it was a business and then when we started to meet people we realized it was it, it wasn't about that and then when I left, when I left last year, people realized, I think that it was never about that for me. And that's when people kind of really realized that. And um, yeah, that, that was kind of, uh, that was quite a big thing, I guess, as well. So yeah, I've, so I've thought about vulnerability a lot. I've researched it. I've just, the one takeaway that like always sticks with me as it relates to like vulnerability is that like, we're always afraid of like being found out, right? And if you really think about vulnerability, we we think that it's like a very tenuous position, right? It's like just thin ice, we gotta protect ourselves, we don't want people to know. But actually, when you're vulnerable, there's nothing that people can find out. And so like, it's actually the strongest position that you can be in, because like, you're just bare and you're open and you're flawed. And like, that's the reality of the human experience, right? Is like, we're all flawed and we all make mistakes. And when somebody's vulnerable, like there's this massive level of trust because it's like, yeah, like I see this person more fully as to who they are. And it's less likely that they're hiding something from me. Cause I mean, shit, like <laughs> they told me they cheated on their wife for 20 years. Right? Like that's a pretty, pretty massive, um, thing to tell somebody. And, and so like, yeah, it just makes all the sense in the world that like that's going to build trust, that's going to build relationship, that's going to build community, um, and then that's going to drive action, and then that's just reflected in the results. Because like when there's passion and when there's trust and belief and community, I mean, really, that's just going to skyrocket results. It's going to be exponential, and like that's just the bottom line. I think. For sure, for sure, and also you want to do a better job for them as well. So when you're doing coaching. 
like you know weekly coach or a daily coach and whatever you're gonna put more into it because you want people to get more out of it from of you. course yeah yeah and i think when you do it as a two or three people like me sam and tommy we also have the ego between us. We want to do a better session than him, or he wants to do a better session than me. But if you do, a, if you have a stable by yourself, like a lot of people do, or there's one main coach or whatever, that's also going to, it's a lot easier to just do like a half-hearted session. You know, like we basically hired probably like the top 10 MTT players in the world, or like t- not top 10 because like everyone's subjective, like 10 of the best MTT players in the world to be our coaches as well. Like we had people like Graf Deckel, there's just like so many like class, Dietrich Fast at the time, uh, Sam Grafton, like so, so many people who were like really good. We, we always overpaid for coaching and had too many coaches, let's say, because we thought that that would also drive us on to do better sessions ourselves because people were watching who were on the same level as us rather than like weaker players. Obviously, you're staking people who have played lower stakes than you normally. So if the people who are playing even higher stakes than you, you want to put on a really good session to make sure that they're getting something out of it too and that they see you as a good player as well because everyone's trying to fight somewhere for their their place in the the food ladder, you know, the food chain. So. Yeah, trying to carve out their place in the hierarchy and move up move up the rungs. Um, again, yeah. I think that's very clever just having, you know, putting com- competitive people in an environment where, like, they're competitive and it's just a massive overall net gain through you know, pushing themselves to try to be a better coach. And I I think that like, it is something that's important to get pushed and also not just to get pushed, but also to, to see other people's methodologies and see like what's working and understand where maybe your flaws are and what you can incorporate and how you can upgrade your coaching process. Cause if it's just like you, well, it's hard to sort of gain visibility of your blind spots. Yeah. And people often don't pay other people, but the thing is, let's say you pay five coaches $400 and then one coach wants to get $1,000. Sometimes paying that coach $1,000 makes sense because you get back that $600 in other ways. Like, you know, it can add $10 per person in other in one area or $5 per person in another area, or maybe the other coaches' sessions, which are $400, maybe because they see this guy who's so good who's like twice as expensive as them and his sessions are so good. Maybe they're $400 sessions. Maybe the value of those sessions actually go up to like $600 because they put in 50% more effort. And then now you've got $200 extra EV from 10 people. So you've made $2,000 rather than paying one guy $1,000. And this is really how we, we were approaching everything at this point like that. We were very like analytical about about things and very open-minded as well, I would say about about those kind of things. So at least we at least we tried to be. Yeah, um, multiple yeah. ways to measure cost. You know, well, yeah. like sometimes, like when you save money, like it, it just creates costs that are downstream that you don't see either that are not readily apparent. And again, like a bunch of wise kids running a poker stable. This is. Uh, it, I we, guess we definitely, te- made mistakes. we definitely made mistakes. Of course, you of course you have to, right? But yeah. you probably learn from mistakes, right? Yeah, yeah. Or try to turn a mistake into a positive, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. Uh, we're getting close. Getting close to time. Shockingly, it's, it's been an hour and a half already. Oh wow. Um, I I want to talk about you leaving Bit B. You said that you left like a year ago. Yeah. So I was um. I started, I was ambassador for party poker from, I think, 
Time flies. I think maybe like five years now, four or five years. So very much a party poker ambassador. But the poker industry, I would say a year ago, like started to change a lot. There's a lot of companies doing, there's always like party and, uh, sorry, there's always poker styles and full tilt initially. It was very, they did the same things. Then there was party and poker stars and they were basically doing the same things, same strategies, blah, blah. And then last year there started to be more sites. So you had like GG poker, you had ACR, you had like poker bros, you had like, I don't know, there's just more sites. There's a lot more sites doing a lot more things with very different strategies between all the sites, I would say, rather than just like a uniform strategy that was just consistent throughout like all the mainstream European sites. Uh, and it got to a point where, because I'm not doing this for the money at this point, or I don't feel like I'm doing it for the money, I don't want to potentially give X amount of rake or like millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars of rake or millions of dollars of rake to sites which I don't necessarily morally agree with. Um, and I'm not saying there was any at the time which I didn't agree with, but I saw the poker industry going in a certain way where it's likely that I would not support some stuff morally um, or ethically from some sites in the future, potentially. I couldn't say if I would, I wouldn't, but there's a possibility that I wouldn't be able to. However, the people that I staked would follow whatever we said, of course. And I felt it was unfair to people who were on the path, which I was on when I was 21, 22, wanting to achieve X, Y, or Z, monetary goals, whatever it may be, maybe chasing, who knows, pocket five spots, whatever. For me to say, you, my, you're not playing on this side because I morally don't agree with it because maybe they do agree with it, you know? And what are, what are some of the moral things that you disagree with? And, and I guess like what has shifted from the days of, you know, Patrick, uh, mischievous Patrick trying to find a car to steal. And then this sort of, um, integrity ethical view of how certain platforms are approaching poker. So, because I was so, I spent all day every day from like 18 to 32 thinking, talking, speaking, tweeting, blogging, vlogging, podcasting about poker all day every day. By the time I got to say 21, 22, I, I was working, my, my job at pokerstrategy.com, I was a, um, I was a, I'm not sure, I can't remember what the term was, basically, I was a, I think I'd like to I was basically like a market analyst, uh, and our job was to protect the poker ecology. So I was like a poker ecologist. So for the year or so I worked there, my whole goal was to work with sites to offer like a fair uh, space for poker players and also to help grow poker in the correct way. Um, whether it be through marketing, uh, developing things like Russian Zoom or like innovative new things to bring new players to games, whatever it may be. If that was our goal, what we did all day every day so at this point i was starting to really understand and care about poker by the time i get to say 25 i'm literally spending all day every day playing poker and then i get to say 25 26 i start to become an ambassador a global ambassador for party poker where my goal is not just to play poker but it's to help party go from very very small site to the second site in the world as we were uh and to be involved in this involved in that uh and again you know have a stable where i'm responsible for you know, 10 million plus dollars a rake a year. All these things are just going up and up and up that my life is basically at this point, you know, like consumed by poker. So because I'm so consumed by it, I'm just naturally going to care about it a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So 
when I get to say 31, 32, like I am now, like I was 31 last year when I made the decision, like I just couldn't guarantee that I, I, I want, I see poker in a certain way, you know, and a way for sites to, to grow really fast, let's say like in a, in a legal app or something, like ways to get around stuff which party stars, GG, whoever can't, can't do because of local regulation, which is really important thing within poker. Um, let's say if my horses could have played on uh, an app where they could play in really good tournaments, but these this app was taking away players from stars, party and GG, um, who had to do things in the right way because they were paying millions of dollars for licenses a year and they could get their licenses taken off them straight away. That would make me uncomfortable um, supporting these illegal sites, whatever it may be, uh, by p giving them so much break to continue to grow and continue to to go down a path which I wouldn't necessarily agree with. However, if I was a twenty, if I have a twenty-one year old uh, student or sticky or horse or whatever you want to call him, uh, minty, yeah, who has a twenty twenty k bankroll and he's 21 and he has, he has aspirations to to get a million dollar bankroll at one point, maybe the best game for him is to play on this app, you know? And maybe he thinks morally it's okay. Like, who am I to... Well, I am the person to tell him uh, what he should do or shouldn't do. And I didn't feel comfortable to be in that situation uh, to tell people um, where they should be playing and where they shouldn't be playing. Yeah. Um, so I thought it, it was unfair... To, to put people into that situation because I I myself stopped playing on some relatively mainstream places or like if there was a Pokestars protest, I would I would be involved in the Pokestars protest, for example. Um, like I would sit out, for, if, if there was a protest about Pokestars Supernova Elite to sit out for a year, I would sit out for a year 100% at the time. Yeah. But if I'm telling my, but I can pay the bills for the next couple of years, you know? Sure. But if I'm telling the students who has a family at home or, a wife waiting to pay the bills. Oh, I wanted to sit out in this protest for a year. It's not really fair because one, he may not agree with the protest, but he has to agree with me. Otherwise, he fears getting dropped. Let's say, uh, and two, like he needs to pay. The, he's. I'm in a comfortable situation where I don't necessarily need to do that kind of thing. You know. So yeah, that was at the time. There was a lot of talk about poker unions, protests, sit out, side to doing this, side to doing that. That's, that's where things left with Bitbeat. I stayed in the community. So I still spoke to the guys every day. I still coached. I still for free, you know, like I wasn't getting paid the salary or whatever. Yeah. Um, I still blogged. I was still probably the most active person within the community, at least one of, you know. I, I used to be like more active than I am uh, than I turned out to be, but I would literally be posting, you know, like all day, every day. And maybe I changed to posting like most of all the most days uh, kind of thing. Um, but I was still the most active guy. Uh, the only thing was I just wasn't getting, you know, um, financial compensation for my time, whatever, let's say, but that kind of showed people in, inside that that was never my, you know. Motivation. Motivation, exactly. Oh. And I think that, because you know when you tell people over the years, or like imagine you work in an office and the manager's like, oh, money doesn't mean anything to me. I'm just doing it for you. I just want you to be happy. You don't really believe them, you know, but and when you actually – if the manager then leaves the job, but then keeps coming back each day into, oh, how are you doing, son? You know, it's like, then you finally might leave them kind of thing, you know, so. Um, I, I agree, but also disagree. Because I think that like, when it comes to these close relationships that you build with the players, I think they know. I, I think like, people know when people genuinely care. 
and yeah. like are genuinely invested into their journey and their process. Now, like a manage, manager, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know how the corporate world works at all. I don't know if that's something like you could tell that a manager is like all gung ho and passionate about what they're doing and like they're in it for the love of managing, right? I do think like a poker coach, though, you can tell guys that are like doing it because they're passionate about it and that they just love helping people out. And, and like it makes all the sense in the world that when you step away, these are your friends, right? In some ways, these are your family. These are people you care about that you're invested in that you just are compelled to continue on even if you aren't getting compensated financially yeah yeah exactly exactly um Um, yeah i think that ended just before the world series last year um i think like for example you know like the world series main event was going to be like unlimited re-entry on like gg i think or, or whatever site at the time and i personally didn't want to play that i didn't play any of the world series last year uh, I, I play on GG now, I have no problem, whatever. But at the time, I decided not to play the World Series because I was against, you know, the the main event being an infinite re-entry. And I didn't want to support that as well. And, you know, like buy loads of people into a tournament, which I wasn't even going to play myself. But at the same time, these people may never get a chance to play the main event again in their life, you know? So that's like a perfect kind of example of like, I'm, I don't want to necessarily put these people in and support this for next year because then next year it's going to be the same thing i want to yeah. sell one year kind of thing and i'm going to protest in that way with my own money then if i'm staking more people in it i'm actually spending more than i would be myself you know so it's like that's the kind of situation which uh which means a lot that's not against gg or anything like that it's just like that's just how it was at the time you know and i mean plus like what if one of your guys wins the main event right like that's another part like would you want to deprive them of you know, that glory, that accomplishment, right? Yeah. Because like, clearly they're high level players and they've got a shot. I mean, yeah. so yeah. I, I guess, how do you manage that? That sort of, um, like, how do you toe that line? You know, I, I know that like, you know, the Venetian ran a tournament a few years back that was like a guarantee, but if more people entered the tournament than the guarantee, like they didn't add the money to the prize pool, right? And, and they hit the guarantee, right? And it's almost like, what, what do you do to combat such things as a community? Because like, it's so hard to coordinate. It's so hard to get everybody on the same page. Every, like, it seems to me that more people are, um, more people care about their own financial interest than like the, the greater good. And that just means that like, ultimately sites, platforms, casinos are just going to do basically whatever the hell they want. And like, we just kind of have to accept it. Yeah, I mean, I think being vocal, like for me personally, I'm never going to like be angry at someone for deciding to do something and I'm never going to like look down on someone necessarily for doing something, but I'm always going to be vocal. I think in, in the poker community, I'm probably like one of, if not the most vocal person about things. Like, I'm not afraid to say that this is not okay or that's not okay. Yeah. Um, and I feel like if, as long as you're consistent with what you say, people people will engage usually in a good discussion with you. So like, Pokestars started to uh, rake rebuys. Like rebuys were always Pokestars' most important, uh, not important, like one of their most popular formats of poker. They started to rake rebuys. And, you know, like I didn't do anything distasteful, but like I spoke out why I, why you can't, why you shouldn't play this uh, from like a financial point of view, uh, why stars probably shouldn't do it from a business point of view. And it was, and it became quite a consistent thought between other regulars because if regulars know that you're not going to be like, you're not biased or whatever, they listen to what you say, they take sure. your point in and other 
other people started to do the same thing. And then now there's not a single, well, I wouldn't say a single rebuy, but I've never played, a, I can't remember seeing a rebuy on PokerStars in the, in the daily schedule for forever, like for, for years now, you know? So like, that's something which if sites see that people are able to have good communication, you can put things across in a way where it's like, don't play on PokerStars, you know? It's like, yeah, PokerStars is great, this and that, the other, but if they do certain things, then as a community, we can discuss them and show them and uh, show like facts and figures and, you know, like profitability lines, whatever it may be. It was, and it, with the stable, actually, we had a lot of power that, you know, we had a hundred people in the tournament of a, say, 2000 player tournament. If we take a hundred people out of that tournament, they have to drop the guarantee because they're off it. So the guarantee turns to a 1500 player tournament. And now people don't play it because it's not 2000 runners. And then it goes down to 1200 and then it slowly drops. Like the big 109 on PokerStars, they started to add re-entries to it. And uh, we took all of our players out of it. It used to be 100K guaranteed and now it's 6K guaranteed. You know, like if stables, stables have shown that if players come together and decide not to support things, the sites have to listen to them because you can just destroy tournaments like that, you know? So... Yeah, um, that's the real leverage. Like, yeah, having all those players. On, this wasn't us going on Twitter saying "Don't play the big one on nine. Sure, this was just us taking the guys out, like almost like a silent protest. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I think that if poker players see that like that kind of stuff is possible, they should you know come together and try to do something unionize or whatever. I've always spoke about poker union why I think it is important. But you know, like like you said, a lot of people are also have their interests their short-term interests at hand. Um, and again, just like I'm not going to tell my horses where they should put the rake and where they should play for themselves, I'm also not going to tell poker players that you have to do this or you have to do that. You know, all I I see my role in the poker community as basically someone who's been around for 14 years, worked on both sides, worked on the operator side as a consultant for all the major poker rooms, worked as an ambassador for party for five years, being a stakey, being a player, played cash games, played tournaments, uh, I see I see my role is just basically informing people of my opinion, but not trying to ever uh, push it onto people, you know, just I say what I think and then I don't argue or even debate, you know, just like I say what I think and then I'm happy to put that across, you know. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it seems like collectively there would be enough people that could band together to really affect like the guarantees and such. Um, just enough passionate people that care about poker where they can sort of act as a unit um, without it just being a stable. But I mean, maybe not. I know people have tried it before and like it just doesn't tend to really work out due to one reason or another. But I mean, like you said, if you, if you affect the financials behind a poker platform, that's, you get their attention, right? Like you, they recognize that like, oh, these people actually have power. So we need to have like an honest discussion and figure out like how to, how to make this make sense. Yeah, or you help another side get better. Like a lot of people have moved to GG and ex-Stars pros and ex-people from elsewhere who maybe didn't get heard at their ex-sites or people who haven't had the opportunity to be an ambassador before. Yeah. They all got roles at Pocus, uh, GG, sorry. And GG have grown really well because they've listened to people. Like Bryn is a good example because Bryn has never been associated with a site before, I don't think. And he used to always tell PokerStars really good ideas about high roller tournaments, and they didn't used to really listen to him. Mm -hmm. And then GG basically said, okay, well, we'll listen to you, we'll give it a try. 
And then all of Bryn's ideas worked out really well, you know, and uh, that was one of the reasons why they became successful. And then they also got people like Negreanu who had stopped being listened to at PokerStars and then now could make really influential decisions at GG, you know, like if you, if you don't, if you don't listen to somebody, if then maybe they go to someone else and can affect you by improving your competition, you know, and now GG is bigger than stars, I think, right? Like it's seen as number one, I think. Um, it just comes so, yeah. full circle, you know, like this is sort of how full tilt used to be, right? Like where people had a voice, it was, you know, play with the pros and yeah. then the pros kind of lost their voice and then gg came about and just kind of did went by a lot of the same playbook that full tilt used and like it's not surprising to me that they're finding tons of success using that because you know what stars did with the supernova elite thing that was like really bad <laughs> um just really bad from like a reputation standpoint and from like the heart of their community like the really hardcore players and i think yeah. it's just important to like give people voices and celebrate you know, celebrate the successes and build up ambassadors of the game. Like that's what we need. We don't need to say like, fuck the pros. We need to build up ambassadors, give people voice, and then, you know, try to innovate, try to do things a little bit yeah. differently. Yeah. I mean, Pokestars were also that site in 1.2 with uh, Isaiah Schoenberg, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So the, the, the question is when, you know, GG or Party or ACR, whoever it may be, when they get five times as big as do they try to get 10 times as big or do they try to start because they see such a gap? They like a monopoly in poker is never great. This is why, although I'm a party ambassador, I always, always support GG. I always support stars. I always support ACR. I, whoever it is, I always tweet out good things. Like if I play the Venom, for example, I will always tweet out, this is an amazing tournament. Thank you so much. Or if GG do like a good software thing, I will always point it out because for me, for party to be, have a monopoly on the market would be terrible for poker you know like for me i want party to be one percent better than all the other sites because they for any poker player we should have we should want all the sites to be on an equal playing field so that they, so that they compete for us you know absolutely um, and well, yeah, yeah. So, in the u.s like sites don't allow their pros like again credit to party for allowing me to be so vocal but yeah you don't see like like stars pros are not allowed to play on the other sites you know like you know like lex and whoever else they, they're not allowed to play on gg or party or wherever else maybe i understand the reasons why too but i think it's important for ambassadors like lex and people like these these are such huge ambassadors for poker for a reason they're poker they're the biggest poker ambassador for poker stars i think it's they should be able to have a, a voice almost to be able to push all of poker do you know what i mean where, where give credit where credit's due kind of thing and i, I really think it's good that party allow me and don't give me shit for tweeting good things about ACR and tweeting good things about GG and realize and I think party realize they don't want to monopolize the market. They just want to be the leader of the market. And there's a big difference between being the leader and being the monopoly of a market. I think um, that's the way that I see it, at least. I, I agree. And like, like something similar, I think something's going to happen in the U S where basically licenses and everything's going to be so expensive that there's going to be very few competitors and like, you can already see, and I haven't played in any regulated market uh, since Black Friday, actually, like mm -hmm. online online poker wise. But you can see that like, you know, WSOP doesn't give a shit about like any innovation, any software upgrades. They don't really care about customer service because like they have very limited competition. And so like, why should they? And so we don't want monopolies because like as soon as something is a monopoly, typically the first thing to go is customer service because like, you don't need to have great customer service if everybody goes to you, right? Yeah. 
and I think that like we need innovation, we need progress. And, you know, poker was innovative and there was progress. Like back in 2005, I mean, party poker was innovating. They were the biggest platform in the world before UIGEA and they pulled out of the US market and they had step tournaments. They just were trying different things, which I think was really awesome. And then, you know, Full Tilt innovated with Rush Poker, um, which was really awesome. And then there was like a lull for a while as it related to like innovation. And we just need competition. And, and like, I'm with you that like monopoly is not in the best interest of the players. I don't think it's in the best interest of the game. And yeah. so, you know, we just need to, yeah, need to have these guys fighting because sure, yeah. the players gain ultimately when they do. 100%. I agree. All right, man, we'll, uh, we'll shut it down. I'll just ask, you know, what now is a big goal that you have for yourself in poker? Um, I'm still very, very competitive, competitive. So, because I don't do as much stable stuff. Nelly choking here. Yeah, don't die on the podcast. That that no. would be good. No, I Nelly did. I think a fly got in my mouth. Uh, yeah. So my goals now are basically to try to be, try to be the best player in the world. Still, like try to to be competitive. I think all the scoop leaderboards, WCoop leaderboards, always try to win them. Uh, always play the highest stakes. Um, just continue improving. I feel like I'm at a period now where I've studied so much over the last couple of years that it's more about playing necessarily than studying. Um, because I did a poker course with Renner once where I basically studied all day every day for like six months, like intensely to make all the content. Yeah. So like now I feel like I wish there was more opportunities to play more online. Like you get like two or three big series a year. Um, so when these series come about, I really want to just perform basically. So Scoop was the first opportunity I had last time. I won a few titles there. Now WCoop starts in 10 days and I'm planning to do the same there again. So uh, basically be ready for the two times of the year where it's most important, which is May and August essentially. So um, yeah, just schedule my, my years around those two times, I think. Around those two months. Um, yeah. I, I found that like, the periods of greatest growth in my career have been like those times where I take time off to just build something. You just, it, it's amazing how complex the game is and how much you can learn and like how, when you just dive deep into like all the granular details, just how greater of an understanding you have of like all the mechanisms in place. And then, you know, you just come out of it and you're like, yeah, let's fucking go. Like now is the time. Yeah. Now is the time to throw down and play some cards. I always say to up and coming players when they ask me for like on Instagram, whatever, for some advice, I tell them to make a poker course and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm saying, yeah, make a, make a hundred video poker calls going over every single thing in poker from every single flop, every single stack size, every single position and make a poker course. And they're like, yeah, but no one will buy it. I'm saying it's not for them. It's for you. <laughs> yeah. I'm in. And if you build a poker course that you think is good enough, for people to buy and be a professional poker player and be a big winner at high stakes, then you're going to know better than all of the people because you've done it all yourself. And then you're going to be, you know, like the, one of the best players. And if not, then poker is probably not for you if you do all that and then you're not at that level, you know? So just make your own poker course and treat it as for yourself, you know? Because I think also, and then a really important thing is speaking things out loud, looking at a screen and thinking that you're hearing it, seeing information is one thing, but hearing, you talk and hearing yourself talk bullshit or whatever is a good way to know that you don't know something or mm. that you know something. So 
making a course and making content which you don't plan to release is my number one tip for basically everyone. Interestingly, this is like a large part of my coaching methodology is guys making plain explained videos, verbalizing their thought process, seeing where they get stuck, where they're confused, and then kind of extracting big level concepts to dive into from there. And it, it becomes very apparent to people very quickly once they start verbalizing the whys they're doing things and they kind of can't. And they're like, I don't know why I did that. Like, I can't think of any data point. I can't prioritize, right? I, I'm not exactly sure. And it's like, oh, so like, this is gaining visibility of like leaks that need to be resolved. And then also, um, I have my guys build out um, strategies for like very specific spots against very specific profiles, specifically because like when you build something, you just gain such a greater understanding of it yourself because like, you have theories, you test your theories, you are like, yeah, I think this spot needs to be played like this. And then you disprove it. And like, by the end, you know, you have a pretty high level understanding of this one specific situation, how it needs to, needs to be played and how it kind of works. And, um, I guess, you know, the bad news for the podcast listener is like, it's sometimes very tedious to look at every single one of these spots. There's a lot of them. <laughs> there's a lot of different flop textures. There's a lot of different equity shifting turns and rivers. And like, you know, the good news is that like, that's the work that needs to be done to be a high level poker player. And very few people do it. Very few people take you up on that um, advice and make a hundred video course. But like yeah. when you do go through it, like you will become a winning poker player or you'll, yeah. you'll learn whether or not you're able to be a winning poker player. I'll put it that way. Yeah. And if you chase greatness in anything, it's always going to be the same thing. Like if you chase greatness in, in tennis, it's not just, you know, doing one shot. You have to perfect every shot, you know, backhand, forehand at the net, different uh, surfaces, et cetera, et cetera. You know, same for driving or football or whatever it may be. Anyone who's at the very top spends most of their time practicing tedious things, you know, like that is, if greatness was easy, people would all be great, right? And Exactly. And people, there's a reason why at every, in any industry, any sport, whatever it may be, there's always those one, two, three, four, five people who are ahead of everybody else for a reason, you know, they weren't just born to do it. Usually they've put in the effort of the tedious stuff um, consistently over a sustained periods of time, so... I think it's just I think is the exact same as anything else. Absolutely. And um, we'll close. I'll ask you, do you have any projects you're working on right now? Don't have to be poker related that are near and dear to your heart. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time every day on, uh, I, own, I actually own a soccer team now in Newcastle. We're one year, Newcastle's where uh, I was born. So I'm back now in Newcastle. The team which I played for when I was 17, getting into mischief, uh, I now own that team. That's and pretty. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and our goal is to be like top, like the top team in the whole of England. So um, when, just like when I was playing $5 sitting goes and I made the blog best in the business to be number one ranked in the world in poker, right now we're number 300, 400 and <laughs> goals yeah. to be ranked number one, you know? So like, yeah, you have to dream big and uh, you have to also work a lot if you want to get big and I'm spending a lot of time on that project. So I'm, um, that's the goal, yeah. We're we're almost at the two hour mark. I can't help myself to ask, how did you come about owning a team? Like, how how did this happen? Um, I knew that it was something which I'm uh, I'd be very good at. Um, it'd be like my skill set's pretty good for it. It's something I'm very interested in. 
It's something which I see a lot of other, just like in poker where I see a lot of um, players playing poorly and knowing I could be very good. Um, I think the football clubs are managed very poorly from people like my dad, who's maybe like the older generation, who's a bit more old school. And I'm trying to bring, I realized a new school kind of touch to something would be very successful and leapfrog, let's say a hundred clubs, like in a day kind of thing. Um, so I knew that it was a lot of scope for it. And it's something which I'm very passionate about. And I feel like because I left football to do poker and I, I wouldn't say completed poker, but like achieved all the goals I set out to, I feel like I have unfinished business still in football and I want to reach like the same level of success as I did in poker within football. So hopefully we do a podcast in the future about uh, chasing football greatness. <laughs> Fuck yeah, man. And it's easy to see the failure points because you've been through it all too, right? So like, that's yeah. sort of like a built-in edge of like, you know, you have pretty low-hanging fruit as like the upgrades that need to be made. And then from the analytical side and the management side, I'm sure you've got a lot to of experience there and wisdom to share. And I'm excited. Like I... I I wish you nothing but the best uh, with your your football team. That is, I mean, that's awesome. Like you're you're you own a team, you manage a team. That is just really really sick. Don't don't manage, just own. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you own it. You manage yeah. the management, yeah. <laughs> right? I guess. Yeah. Um, final question here: Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find more about you on the World Wide Web? Um, I think I'm most active on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I think I'm Pads, Pads Poker on Twitter and Pads1161 on Instagram. But, uh, I do a lot of reality TV. Uh, I do a lot of sports betting tips on Instagram. And uh, on Twitter, it's more just poker, really. Hence Pads Poker. Sports betting tips. God, stop. Yeah. You're like dropping these little like nuggets of like, what, what the hell is sports betting? Where did that come from? Like out of left field. I, well, I, I'm actually very big on reality TV uh, betting because the bookmakers, like the opposition, they don't allocate resources to reality TV because it's um, a, the liquidity is not, not large. What do you mean by reality TV? Like stuff like Big Brother or Love Island or like... Uh, okay. Well, even, even, <laughs> I thought there was a disconnect, but no, it's reality TV. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically like reality TV is so big in society, like everyone watches it. Yeah. So, so sites have to offer a market because everyone searches for it because they're even ah. like people who are very new to gambling too, they'll search like odds or winners odds or whatever. So they have to offer a market, but because reality TV has no data in terms of like um there's no models because it's not like data driven like sports mm -hmm. they don't have like traders who know what they're doing necessarily so they just like go off voting polls so essentially like a reality tv uh vote poll sounds kind of, this is very geeky but the reality tv markets get based off uh, opinion polls so, like there's a poll every day of who's your favorite person and if someone gets like one percent they go to like 50 to one and if someone goes to 50 to one usually they're very controversial so the producers of the tv show never allow them to be eliminated until the very end and usually create a story arc and narrative where they always drop to being around about even money by the end so we bet a lot on like the outsiders a lot of money and then try to lay it off when they get to around about evens that's kind of the overall <laughs> the overall strategy it's very it's very it's very good i promise you that is fucking hilarious because like yeah. Yeah, like a polarizing, I mean, that's why I like the real world, the people that they interviewed, they want polarizing people, right? They want people that like pull in the viewers. And yeah. 
Yeah, that's fucking hilarious. Um, and <laughs> I, I guess like it has to be obviously live. It can't be anything that's like pre-recorded because then no, that's it's all like, live because it's all like uh, people voting uh, like live. Yeah, yeah so. gotcha. Like American Idol style. Exactly um, like right. X Factor kind of styles. Yeah, yeah. Although um, that's a little bit about talent, so it's slightly different. But yeah, like that kind of thing. Oh man, we could have another whole podcast just on this. I think. Um, talking? Man, it, it's been it's been great having you. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, I actually I didn't ask any of the normal questions that I ask. Um, we got too we got too deep into your story. That was just really incredible. Right. I, I very much enjoyed it. Please don't. Um, it just gives me an excuse to you know ask you to be back on sometime in the near future. And uh, more than happy. Yeah, great getting to know you, man. Have a great rest of your day. And thank you for your time and your energy. Thanks very much. See you. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community. Book a coaching session or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.